0: Good morning, St. Paul's. Thank you for joining us on live stream. I hope you're all keeping warm on this snowy Super Bowl Sunday. So, after 25 weeks in the book of of Revelation, we have finally come to John's vision of the culmination of all of history. Uh, We might call this a vision of heaven. And by heaven, I mean The eternal good state of being. When you hear that word heaven, um, that's what I want you to think. The eternal good state of being. The passage that we're going to look at this Sunday and next Sunday is the longest description in the Bible of heaven. The eternal good state of being. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to learn about heaven. Uh, We're going to read the passage and then I'm going to try and Uh, put together a a list of things that we can say confidently about heaven based on this vision. And some of what you see on that list might be surprising. Uh, Some of it, I'm sure, will not be surprising. Uh, A lot of the popular conceptions of heaven will definitely not be on the list. Um, It's not going to say that you're going to have a halo or that you're going to sit on a cloud uh, or that everyone's going to be playing harps. It's going to be a lot better than that, a lot more interesting than that. So, if you have a Bible, make your way to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Let me pray for us. Lord, we invite you this morning to work through these words we're about to read, uh, to inspire us, to encourage us. Uh, Lord, we, we want to catch a vision of, of heaven, and uh, we, want, we want to be inspired by that. We want to be transformed by that. And so, Lord, we just invite you to work this morning in our hearts, in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Revelation 21. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick, by man's measurement, which the angel was using." The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystal praise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. All right, wow, I know that there's a lot to digest there, but we're going to do our best. So... What does this teach us about heaven? What does this amazing vision reveal? First thing, heaven involves earth. Heaven involves earth. John says that he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now when you hear that word earth, I want you to think of dirt, mountains, trees, farms, uh, forests, That sort of thing. That is all going to be part of the eternal good state of heaven. Heaven involves earth. I think it's important to clarify this, because a lot of people have this idea that heaven is this totally non-physical state of being. Uh, That it's this sort of uh, ephemeral, ephemeral world where Um, Everybody floats around in this blissful, disembodied state. But that's not what I see in Scripture. You know, the whole story of the Bible begins with God creating a physical, material world. And he calls it good. He says it's good. He loves it. He loves this physical, material world. And so history is not going to culminate with the obliteration of the physical, material world, the eternal Good state will be enjoyed on a new earth. Notice uh, in John's vision, it says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God. A lot of us have this idea that heaven is all about flying up and away, right? But in the vision, heaven comes down to earth. Heaven involves earth. And I don't know about you. But that's really good news to me, because the longer I live, the more I appreciate this world, this physical material world, as messed up as it is. You know, the the more I find myself appreciating the trees, the mountains, the sky, you know, the way the light comes in through the window in the morning. And heaven is not a place that just tosses all of that, that gets rid of it. Okay, heaven involves earth, a renewed earth. Now, closely related to this is the idea that heaven is a place where everything will be made new. Heaven is a place where everything will be made new. God says, I am making everything new. Now, notice, he doesn't say, I am making all new things. Right? He says, I am making everything new. And there's a difference there. There's a significant difference. If you owned an old house that was falling apart, um, falling more and more into disrepair, and you said, I am making it new, that wouldn't mean I'm just destroying the whole thing, right? It would mean I'm fixing it, I'm restoring it, I'm patching the leaks, I'm, you know, rebuilding uh, the, the, the walls that are <laughs> falling over, right? It would mean that you were restoring it, not uh, knocking it down. And that's what God is saying here about his creation, right? I'm restoring it. I'm fixing it. I'm making it new. It reminds me of when Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Now, if you have a house, and then you pronounce it condemned, what does that mean? That means this place is no longer habitable, okay? We just got to throw this thing out, get rid of it. But Jesus did not come into this world to pronounce it condemned, to pronounce it uninhabitable, right? He came here to save it, to rescue it, restore it. And heaven is what the world looks like when God has completed his restoration project. The fact that heaven is a place where everything is made new, it tells us that there's going to be some things about heaven that are the same, as the world we're in now, and there are things that are going to be different, things that are continuous with the world as it is now, and things that are discontinuous. Here's an analogy that might be helpful. Uh, you know, when your phone has a uh, operating software operating software update, right? Um, I have an iPhone, so I have one like every week, and uh, you wake up in the morning, and there's a lot that is continuous with the way your phone was when you went to bed, right? Hopefully the apps are all still there. They're all kind of laid out in the same general uh, configuration. All of your photos should still be there, like your memories are still recorded on the phone, right? But there's also things that are different. Hopefully bugs have been fix- fixed. Things uh, look a little a little bit different. Things have changed. And maybe it could be helpful to think of heaven as God's... Uh, perfect operating system update for creation. It's the the perfect fix, uh, the fix that removes all the bugs of of sin and evil, and it doesn't completely start from scratch, right, but it updates uh, what what is already there and and restores it. I think there's another uh, parallel here with Jesus' resurrected body. There were things about Jesus' resurrected body that were different from his pre-resurrected body. Uh, So much so that when people who knew him saw his resurrected body, many of them did not immediately recognize him. You might remember that if you're familiar with the, the resurrection accounts. So there were things that were different, but there were also things that were the same. You might also remember that Jesus still had visible signs of scars, from his crucifixion in his, his hands and, and in his side. And I think that the new earth, heaven, the eternal good state, is going to be kind of like Jesus' resurrected body. Uh, the new earth is going to be so different that you might not even recognize it as earth when you see it. But it's going to be similar enough that we'll be able to tell that it is the same world that we once New, that world that was scarred by by sin and evil, but it's been redeemed. All right. Third thing, I want us to notice about heaven. Heaven is a city. Heaven is a city. The author Eugene Peterson points out that the story of the Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I am much more of a country guy than a city guy. I like nature. I like wide open spaces. I like fresh air. Uh, Cities are busy and, and crowded. I don't mind visiting them, but I prefer to live outside of them personally. I know a lot of people who feel differently, but that's me. So, does this vision mean that heaven is going to be disappointing for people like me? Well, I don't think the point of the vision is to tell us that heaven is going to be stressful and crowded and that there aren't going to be any wide open spaces or any pristine looking nature or anything like that. I don't think that's the point. The point is that heaven is a thriving human civilization. It is a thriving human civilization. Okay, heaven is a place where human beings are exercising creativity, where they're working together. I mean, ideally, that's what a city is, right? People come together to accomplish things in a city that they could not accomplish, spread out, uh, you know, not working together. Heaven is a place where people are building things, where they're inventing things, where they're using their gifts and talents and, and working together in harmony to create good culture and food and music and art and architecture. Um, It's this uh, glorious unity of diversity. Heaven is not a place where we all just sit around uh, plucking harps on clouds. It is alive. It's a place of activity. It is a truly healthy society. And keep in mind, okay, if heaven is represented by a city... That suggests that the city is populated, right? Cities are big. So it's not just a handful of people who were perfectly pious throughout their lives. It's not just uh, some teeny remnant. It's a multitude, as we're told earlier in Revelation. It is a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, every nation, every language. It is an active, harmonious multitude. Heaven is a city. All right, next, uh, let's take a moment to appreciate this one. Heaven is a place without suffering. Heaven is a place without suffering. Look at verse 4 again. You know, I don't know if you can find a verse in the Bible that beats this one. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's an astounding promise when we think about what it really means. I mean, there's the obvious aspect of it, which is, there's not going to be any more sickness. There's not going to be any more death. There's not going to be any more cancer. There's not going to be any more AIDS or kidney stones or COVID, no more arthritis, no more broken bones, no more heart failure. But there's a less obvious aspect of the promise. If every tear is going to be wiped away, that must mean that God is going to address our sorrow from our past, too. You know, all of us have things from our past that if we dwell on them, they stir up sorrow. They might stir up tears. You know, if we reflect on the death or suffering of a loved one. If we remember, you know, insults that we endured or bullying that we endured from our classmates when we were growing up. um, If we remember abandonment from... Uh, family members, from, from friends, if we think of missed opportunities, if we reflect on shame that we carry from sins from our past, from, from mistakes that we've made, you know, if we reflect on abuse that we've received or abuse that we've given, right? those are all causes for, for sorrow, for tears. But in heaven, our sorrow over these things is somehow. Removed. It's relieved. Our tears are wiped away. There's no longer any need for them. Now, I don't know exactly how God is going to accomplish that, but that is the promise. What a promise that is. There's a song by David Crowder that says, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal heal. If God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, that must be true. When you really think about all the sorrows in the world, that is astounding, an astounding thought. It seems impossible. But that is what the voice from the throne declares, right? I will wipe away every tear. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. What else can we say about heaven? Heaven is a place free of sin and evil. Now this one kind of goes hand in hand with the last one. If you're going to have a world without suffering, it also needs to be a world that is free from sin and evil. Sin and evil is ultimately the root of suffering and death. Now you might have noticed that back in verse 1, it said that when the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. And you might have wondered, what, what is that about? Now, I don't know about you, but I really like the ocean. You know, when I go on vacation, I go to the ocean. Um, I think the ocean's beautiful. So, is this saying that in the new earth there will be no ocean? It's just all going to be land. Well. It may not surprise you to hear that I don't think that that's what it's saying. Remember, Revelation is a highly symbolic book. And throughout Scripture, the sea, waters, are often symbolic of chaos. Uh, They're often symbolic of what you might call the forces of anti-creation, the forces of evil. You might remember that all the way back, the very beginning of the Bible... Uh, when it says that God created the heavens in the, the earth, it says that um, darkness was over the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over it. It's a very interesting verse. But what it's suggesting is that the waters represent this sort of raw material, this uncreated, chaotic something, and then the Spirit of God hovers over that in brings it to life, brings it to form and order and, and, and creates out of that. And so sometimes when you, when you hear about the waters in Scripture, it represents that uncreated, the forces of anti-creation, chaos, that sort of thing. And so what I believe this is saying is there is no sea as a way of saying there is no more chaos, there is no more forces of anti-creation, um, there is no more evil. Sin and evil are gone. What else does this, ver- this uh, vision tell us about heaven? This is a simple one, but I think it's important to recognize. Heaven is beautiful. Heaven is beautiful. You know, we had all those references to precious jewels in there, many of which I did not know how to pronounce, some of which I never heard of before. Um, You've got references to pure gold and pure glass. Now, do we have to assume that this is literally exactly what heaven is going to look like and that there's going to be these 12 foundations and each one of those stones will be there? Personally, I don't think we have to assume that it will literally be like that. It may literally be like that. But the point here is that John is having this vision with, with this imagery that, that tells him, that makes it clear to him, heaven is beautiful. Okay, it is it is more beautiful than we can even imagine. You know, heaven is not a place where someone stands at the gate and says, uh, "That can only come in here if it's useful." You know, if you have ever um, set up a room in your house and you felt compelled to put something in there that wasn't useful, that wasn't necessary, like a painting or a photograph or a plant. I think that when you did that, you were reflecting something of being made in the image of God. You were reflecting your desire for heaven, okay? Because God doesn't just care about usefulness. He doesn't just care about functionality. He cares about beauty, right? He is the ultimate source of all true beauty. And he, he, he likes beautiful things, right? And, he, and heaven is going to be a place that is supremely beautiful. Not just functional, not just useful, uh, but beautiful. I, th- I believe it will be a place where art is valued, where architecture is valued, where color and decor are valued. All right, what else? Um, heaven is the culmination of what God has done through the nation of Israel and the church. Heaven is the culmination of what God has done through the nation of Israel. And the church. So John said that on the 12 gates of the city were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he said that the city had 12 foundations and on each foundation was written the name of one of the 12 apostles. Now again, is it important for us to take this really literally? Personally, I don't think so. Could be, might not be. But the point here is that the groundwork has been being laid by God throughout history for heaven. And the way that he has been doing it is through the nation of Israel and through the Christ Church. Okay? If any of us are in heaven, it is going to be because of what God has built uh, through his interaction with the nation of Israel and the church. Okay? That is the foundation that we will be standing on. The story of history is meaningful, and uh, it it is is a story of God revealing himself to the nation of Israel and then through through the church. Okay, finally, one last thing uh, that I want us to recognize is heaven is a place where God dwells with human beings. Remember verse 3. First thing that the voice from the throne that God Pronounces is, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Now, in order to really appreciate what that's saying, we have to remember the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're familiar at all with the story, you know uh, that in the Old Testament, the center of Jewish worship was the temple in Jerusalem, and it was believed that the presence of God resided in the temple. And specifically, the presence of of God resided in this just powerful way in one part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And this is a relevant detail. The Holy of Holies was a cube-shaped room. A cube-shaped room. And what many commentators say is that the reason the New Jerusalem is described as cube-shaped is because it's supposed to recall the holy of holies in the temple. And it's, it's a way of saying, hey, remember that place in the temple where God's presence was just so there that it was scary, right? That one little place in the temple. Now all of creation is going to be like that little place. Okay, that's how present God is going to be in the new heaven, in the, the new earth. That's why there's no need for a temple in the New Jerusalem, right? There's no need, because the whole thing is a temple. And not only is the whole thing a temple, the whole thing is the holiest of holies uh, within the temple. Heaven is a place where there is no distance between us and God, where there is no sin uh, blocking our view of him, no evil getting in the way or corrupting our perspective of God. Heaven is a place where there is no alienation from God at all. Now, if you think about it, the whole story of the Bible is a story of us becoming alienated from our Creator, and then God doing everything that is necessary to remove that alienation, right? To reconcile us to himself. And what John is describing here is the culmination of that that process. If you ask the average person to describe what they want heaven to be like, I think you would hear things like, you know, I want it to be a place where I am reunited with my deceased loved ones. I want it to be a place where I show up and, you know, all, all the pets that I had run up to my feet. Uh, I, I want it to be a place where I can eat where, whatever I want and not gain any weight. I want it to be a place where, you know, I don't have to deal with my back pain anymore. Um, And it's not wrong to want those things, to hope for those things. But what we really want, most of all, whether we realize it or not, is to dwell with God. That is what we want. We want to know the source of all goodness and all beauty and all life and love. There's a famous quote from St. Augustine, which says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We all want something beyond what this world can give us. And I like to call this longing the holy ache. The holy ache. It is a longing to know God and to be known By God. And that's what Augustine was talking about when he said those words. And it's because of that holy ache that the first thing the voice from the throne says is, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. In other words, your holy ache, your longing for something beyond what this world contains, it can be satisfied. To those of us who feel the holy ache, God says, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is pretty much the same invitation that Jesus gave in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus was at something called the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And it says that on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stood up, And he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. In other words, if you want life, if you want peace, if you want rest for your restless heart, then come to Jesus. Trust in me. Believe in me, Jesus says. I will satisfy your holy ache, your thirst. And I love the way the invitation in Revelation puts it, right? To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. To him who is thirsty, not to him who is perfect, right? Not to him who has his whole life together and thinks he doesn't need any help. To him who is thirsty. We don't get to heaven by giving God our perfection. As if we could ever do such a thing. right? We get into heaven by bringing God our need. By acknowledging our need, our thirst, our holy ache. And God says to us who recognize our need. He says, come, I will give you living water to drink without cost. Those are such beautiful words, right? Without cost. Some translations say freely. I will give to drink freely. I love that. In other words, I'm not going to charge you for this living water. I am generous with it. I'm not going to charge you because I already paid the price for it. I paid the price through the cross. So come. Come and drink it. I encourage us this morning... If you feel the holy ache, you know, if as we talk about heaven you feel that longing for this place, let that holy ache lead you to Jesus. Because he will lead you to this wonderful place that that we've been describing today. Bring your need, bring your longing, and he will give freely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the invitation to come and receive the water of life. Father, I pray this morning that we would feel the holy ache and that we would let it lead us to you. Lord, we want to put our hope and trust in you. We want you to be the center of our lives. And Lord, we pray that as we allow you to be Lord over our lives, as we trust in you, Um, that we would look forward to this new heaven and a new earth, that we would look forward to this restored creation uh, that all of history will culminate with. God, we give you thanks for this vision, we give you thanks for these promises, and we pray that they would uh, influence everything about the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.